invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we, uh, as we continue, I'm really going to take a lot of time today, and I've done this in other times. This isn't unusual for me uh, anymore. It used to be very unusual for me, but not really recently in the last, recently in the last like eight to ten years. So if you've only been coming here for eight to ten years, you say, well, this is normal. Um, we're going to be really just doing a word study today uh, as an introduction, really, into a portion of Scripture. It's going to take me a couple of weeks to get through. It's probably three unless I get into it a little bit today. Uh, and that word is a very critical word in all, in, in multiple places in Peter. Uh, here he's going to use in 2 Peter three times. We've already really studied one of those occasions uh, in the past, several weeks ago, when we talked about the theological significance of our response, our part in, in our salvation. And we're going to be revisiting that passage today, as well as the other two occasions of this one word's use. And that one word is the word diligence. We find it here in verse 5. It says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. And it goes on and proceeds through these seven qualities of the people uh, who are called by his name. We're going to be studying out these seven qualities, uh, beginning from faith and proceeding through the next few verses and concluding in brotherly love. And so we're going to be walking our way through these, uh, be doing several a week. Whether I can do um, three a week or two a week, we'll see. Uh, but we're going to be walking through these virtues, these uh, qualities that we should be seeing brought into our lives. But before we do that, we need to understand what the expectation is. The expectation is that we're going to apply ourselves to this process. That is the word all diligence, that you give all diligence. It is not your passive role to simply receive these from God. Now, there are some elements of the Christian life in which you are the passive recipient. And even then, you should have an active response when God passively grants you something. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit are one of those elements where when we accept Christ as our Savior and Lord, that he grants us spiritual gifts. And those are described for us both in, in multiple places in Scripture. And our expectation is that we would then identify those and use those within the service of the church. But they are past, you are the passive recipient. There's nothing you did uh, outside of receiving Christ your Savior by which you were granted those gifts, that gift or gifts, whether you have one or multiple, by which you are then to exercise them for the ministry, for the, for the benefit of the church, for the growth of one another, uh, not, not for personal interests, but really for the interests of the body of Christ. So we are serving it as members with various functions, is the, is the picture that Paul painted for us. And so there are elements of the Christian walk in which we are the passive recipients. And you might think that I don't believe that about anything in the Christian walk, but there are a few. They are just very rare. More often than not, God waits upon us to engage 
ourselves in the pursuit of certain elements of the Christian walk. And for Peter here, he describes that pursuit with the word diligence, that you're giving all diligence. You are engaging yourself in this process, that God is ready and willing to enable you and to provide these for you should you actually want to do something and want to increase or to add these elements into your life. But he waits for you to make that choice. And it's more than just a choice of saying, I'm going to say I want this. It is much more than that. And that is what is entailed in this concept of giving all diligence. It is an emphatic word here in verse 5. It is more emphatic here than the other two places in 2 Peter. And, and thus we want to study it out in this context as we apply it to these other two passages as well. And really, this is the second time I said we've uh, come into the second use of it, which is very quickly here in first, 2 Peter 1. And that is in verse 10. Let's just jump there. We're going to catalog all these for you, all three of them. It says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. So we're going from an emphatic diligence to a increased diligence. You're going to be even more diligent uh, when we get to verse 10. So we have all diligence. You say, well, if I gave all diligence to this, how can I increase that uh, in another realm? And we're going to talk about how that occurs and we have to jump a little bit farther along to get the cataloging of all of the, the use of this in the English, this one word. Uh, there, are, there is a couple uses that aren't translated as diligence uh, that we're going to be referencing later on as we get to those. But I wanted to look at these three because they were definitely in your scriptures this way. Verse 14 uh, of chapter 3, if you want to turn there. It says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that long-suffering our Lord is salvation. And we're going to stop there. And so again, we see that this is a repeated instruction by Peter that puts the responsibility for our Christian walk clearly upon the... Uh, our shoulders in terms of its progress. The foundation is laid. That is Jesus Christ. And there can be no adding to that. We're not, we don't need to add our works to accomplish and to complete our salvation. We are not doing that. We are saying, what are we constructing on this foundation of Christ? We are not expanding that, saying, well, you need Christ plus this to get to heaven. That is not implied in this word at all. This is a responsive activity of those who are fully trusting in Jesus Christ. We made that very clear when we studied verse 10 earlier in this series. We talked about the necessity. How am I to make my calling and my election sure? It is not by making your own foundation, because that is the easiest way to make it unsure. Because once you step off the foundation of the sacrifice and person of Jesus Christ, you are on unsteady ground. It is like adding an addition to your house without putting it with, and putting in a, a rubble foundation instead of a reinforced concrete foundation. Now you, you've certainly expanded it, but you haven't made it safer. 
All right? You cannot expand on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about that. And those that want to take me to task for that, I just want to share with you, we are not adding to our salvation. Uh, to do so is dangerous. To, to say that I need more than Jesus and his sacrifice, his shed blood, and the power of the resurrection to be saved? No, but you do need Jesus. You have to have that full foundation. And once you have that, it is foolishness to think, well, I have the foundation, I don't need to do anything more. Because God repeatedly gives you instruction that you are to build on that foundation. That you are then to enter into this relationship with God that should be maturing, should be growing. And that is a responsibility that he puts upon you in response to the foundation that he has provided for you. Uh, And if any builder knows that the foundation is the key to any structure, you cheat on that, you are in trouble no matter what else you do above it. And so we are not going to diminish the power and strength of our foundation, which is Jesus Christ. That is not what I'm attempting to do or encouraging you to think in your mind to do. That somehow you need Jesus plus your works to accomplish salvation. What I'm saying is if you have truly trusted in Jesus Christ, now you should be having a very firm foundation with that in place. The expectation is now that you will build your life on that foundation, on Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ has provided you a pretty substantial foundation. (laughs) Uh, Mansion size, okay? Let's keep the motif going here. You can build a very small house on a very big foundation. You might say, well, that's kind of foolish. You laid this huge foundation. Why would I build a little hut on top of this really powerful foundation? Well, you can do it. And from what my experience is, most Christians are. Well, we are seeking to discover in the study of God's word, which we're going to apply this word diligence to, is we're trying to find out how great a salvation this is, and thus how much of my life can be built on it. That I don't need to have this tiny little house on this enormous foundation that Christ had, nor do I have to have just part of my house on this foundation and the other part out there in the mud. And so the foolish man builds his house on the sand. And so it'd be foolish to have this huge foundation, build one room of your house on that and have the rest out here with no foundation. Yet that is also something many Christians do. I'll give this part of my life to Christ. I'll have him the foundation of this part, but the rest of it I have control over and it's my wisdom, it's, it's the world, it's all these other things that I'm trusting on and in uh, that I'm constructing this part of my life in. No, the expectation is that you'll place all of your life and build it on this foundation of Christ. And while it may seem limited to you because you don't have a knowledge of exactly the extent of this foundation of Christ, it is there whether you know it's there or not. And, and it has plenty of room for an expansive life. And this is what Peter wants for his readers. 
He says, I want you not to just have this concept of the Christian life as being a little hut. Because the foundation that has been laid for you is to build a magnificent life on this that will continue and continue to to expand and to grow. Uh, And that's the whole context here of what we're going to be getting to the next few weeks. What are you adding in your Christian life? What are you adding to these base things? And uh, we often want to use the term, well, I want to increase. And we often think, well, increase means I need to take this and make it bigger. Uh, and that's not necessarily how you increase. And, and, but rather, we're adding additional components. And again, keeping that same motif, um, if I want to build a bigger, I, I just don't want bigger and bigger. You know, I'm going to have one giant living room. Well, now you have no kitchen, no bathroom, no bedroom, right? So I've never found anyone that expand their house and say, I just want this bigger. No, you're really going to add more rooms. You're going to add different uses. So you're going to have a den and an office and a nursery and another bathroom and a porch, a patio, whatever. You're going to have all these, a sunroom. That's what I'm working on for the last four years. I don't know why my projects never get done. Well, I do. It's because I don't have 20 Haitians if I had them. (coughs) But we want to add to it. And that's what Peter's going to talk about here. You're going to add to this, add to this, add to this, add to this. Don't be settled that this is sufficient. This is the the, the entirety of the Christian experience is this one room. So we're going to be exploring these seven rooms of the Christian life in the next few weeks. But we have a responsibility. The foundation has been laid. It is expansive enough. It is strong enough. It is sure. It is immovable. It is indestructible. We have an incredible foundation laid for us in Jesus Christ. And he now offers us and invites us and, in fact, commands us to build on it. To build our lives there and only there on Christ. And the word he uses to describe this process is that you do it with diligence. Now we're going to be looking at two prongs of diligence, because diligence really implies two different things brought together. We could, and it's really brought out in the Greek too, that we really have two facets brought in. We could use a different word, and that would describe one of the facets, and we could use another word that would describe another one of the facets, but this word is bringing both of those together. And so we're going to look at both aspects of what it means to be diligent. We're to consider that we're supposed to give all diligence, and then even more diligence, and then uh, repeated that, that we don't forget diligence in the midst of this. So what is involved in diligence? Well, diligence, the two facets that we want to talk about are uh, fastidiousness. That is attention to detail. That I'm going to get down in and I'm going to, and I'm going to study. I'm going to have an increased knowledge. I'm going to have a, a, a full view of what's going on. That I'm going to engage myself in knowing all the details of what is required of me. 
uh, in real estate, they tell you, make sure you do your due diligence, which means you got to research the background. And, and that's why usually you guys don't want to do that, don't know how to do that. So you hire a title company to do that. And they have to do due diligence to see what the background of all the ownership and transfers of the history of that property that were done legally. So no one can come to you after you buy the property and spend your hundreds of thousands of dollars to say, that's actually mine. So they do due diligence. That means that they're going to go back and, and re go through all the previous records and make sure that this is properly assigned to you and that you have true ownership of it. And so it's that whole idea that I'm going to apply myself to understand and to know and to be assured of these things. It involves our intellect. It involves a determination that I want to do it right. That I don't want to, and this is really important, by the way, in Peter, because when we get to chapter 2 and following, what's he concerned about? That you get it wrong. Because there's plenty of people that are going to walk around and say, oh, do this for your Christian life, do this to have your Christian life, do this, and they're all going to be wrong. They're not going to be according to the knowledge of God. They're not going to be according to the righteousness of God. They're not going to be according to the promises of God. Do those sound familiar at all to you? The last two weeks' messages? They're not going to be according to that. They're going to be skewed. And if you've ever seen a building built skewed, you don't want to really go into it very much. If all the trust studs are going this way or this way, you don't want to go in there because it's kind of like it's ready to fall, has half fallen down already. It's poor workmanship. And Peter doesn't want poor workmanship, and neither does God, neither do I. I hope neither do you. But yet we are willing to build up our lives on poor workmanship because we won't do, be diligent. We won't investigate what it is to build a real life that Christ loves, that Christ applauds. We all want to quote the saying, well, when we get to heaven, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, without thinking, what does it mean, really, to be a good and faithful servant? Not by my standards, not by the church's standards, by God's standard, what does that mean? Do your due diligence and find out. It involves study, and Paul tells Timothy, uh, <laughs> study, you better study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. You mean there's going to be people getting to heaven ashamed? Yes. Why? Because they had this excellent foundation and they built a crooked, feeble building on it by their own estimations instead of using things like rulers and levels and squares. Those are absolute standards, by the way. This is our absolute standard. I don't trust my eye. I don't trust how, it, oh, it looks okay. Oh, I think it's okay. I, I'm all right with that because I don't want to do any more work. No, I get out the ruler. I get out the level. I get out the square. And I see, is this level? Is it the right measurement? And is it square? Where am I leaning? I don't trust it. I don't, I don't trust myself. If I want to build up a, a Christian life on this wonderful foundation that God has provided for me, I want some absolutes, and I want to hold myself to those, and so I'm going to do diligence. 
I'm going to be investigating them. I want to I know them. I want to not just have some cursory knowledge of them. I want in-depth understanding of them so that I build a building that is approved by God, that is something that is pleasing, well-pleasing in his sight. That should be our aspiration. We should desire after that, that we're going to construct something in my life that God is well-pleased with. Not just something that'll get me under the wire. I just, you know, as long as I'm in heaven, I'm okay. Really? You want to get to heaven and be ashamed? That's how you want to arrive into your eternal state with a Savior who laid such a fantastic foundation for you? You want to get there? You say, can people be ashamed when they get to heaven? Absolutely. Why do you think there is a judgment seat of Christ? How would you like to be the guy that arrives there and you're looking over there and say, what's that bonfire over there? That's all your good works that you did wrong. That bonfire over there is your good works that you did poorly. You didn't do it according to my specifications. You did it by your own specifications, in your own wisdom, in your own understanding, and not in mine, and they're just being burned up. Be glad you're not with them. Because that's all your salvation kept you from. And now you enter heaven empty-handed. Because everything you thought were good works, God didn't consider them that at all. Jesus Christ talked about these, and even the more dangerous thing, that maybe all those good works are because you weren't ever really on the foundation. He says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look what I've done. I've done this, I've done that, I've done that. He says, oh, you weren't even on the foundation. I don't know you. You're going into eternal fire. But at least for the believer who's believed in Jesus Christ, um, he's there, but boy, all of his works are being burned up. Because he has no gold, silver, precious stone, nothing enduring in his life because he did it his way instead of God's way. Peter doesn't want that for his listeners. He doesn't want that for his readers. He doesn't want that for you. He wants you to have that diligence to know this pleases God. And when something in our heart, something in our conscience, something in our mind, uh, something in our, in our realm of, of study of, of what pleases God bothers us, we say, I'm not sure if this pleases God or not. Oh, what a time to say, hit the brakes. Blinking yellow lights. Warning, warning, warning. I'm not sure. And then you decide a course of life out of that insecurity of not knowing what pleases God. You have set yourself up for that bonfire at the judgment seat of Christ. You have set yourself up to lay down a course of living that God may not approve of. And he'll remove blessings from you, not only in the future where you enter heaven empty-handed, but even here on earth where you, he says, well, why should I bless you? You just do it whatever you want. I don't will approve it in the future. I don't approve it now. I have given you the ruler. I've given you the level. I've given you the square. Build your life in this matter. But we don't know how to use the ruler. We don't know where the square is. We don't know what's level anymore. Because we haven't done diligence. That side of diligence 
that is the investigation, the study, the app. I want to know the details. I want to know how to do it right. Oh, that we would have a commitment that I want to do it right. Even if it counters my culture, and maybe especially when it counters my culture, I want to do it right. Even when it says, well, what does that matter? Um, (laughs) Ignorance, by the way, is a horrible way to build. What does it matter? And I've had people that I'm like, well, that board right there matters. Why does it matter? It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be there. I said, okay, take it out. You don't need to put it in there. But I know that in a few weeks when they try to do other things that building, like drywall, suddenly they're not going to have anything to nail to. Oh, now we know why it matters. Ah, but you were ignorant because you've never seen a completed project. Right? Pastor, why does that matter? Why does this matter? Why do I have to do this? And what you're arguing with isn't me. You're arguing with the ruler. You're arguing with the level. Why does it matter? You're arguing with the square of God's words, and you're saying, why does that matter? I've had people use that argument. Why should I get baptized? It doesn't matter. You're arguing with the ruler. Because you don't know the end result and the process of getting from here to a completed building that glorifies God. Why do I have to obey that? I think that's a social construct. I think that's just for Bible times. That's not for modern times. We're more sophisticated than that. And your argument is with the ruler. An absolute authority that is right all the time. And so when I have married couples say, oh, I say, well, here's what God's word says. Oh, why does that? Because this is the square. This is the level. Your argument is with this. You cannot expect your marriage, you can't expect your life, you cannot expect your family, you can't expect your work, you can't expect any element of your life to have God's approval when we ignore the ruler to build our lives on this wonderful foundation. Do your diligence. To come to and say, this is the truth, I should know it better, I need to study it, and when I do so and I have something that's not real in my life that I'm not doing and it tells me to do it, I need to change my life. I can't just question the ruler. You don't have the right. Well, you do. You can question the ruler and you can throw the ruler out. But don't call yourself a child of God. Don't claim you're on the foundation and that everything you do is there to glorify God. Don't claim any of that. You're doing it to glorify yourself, to appease yourself, to make your, to, in your comfort zone of how you want to live, not how God wants us to live. And it's interesting because most of the things that people object to in God's word, I look at them and I say, do you really think your life is going to be better without this? And usually they're, way off and it's like I can give you example example but you still believe in your heart that God has it out for you and wants you to be miserable but God's intention is good for you and so we have a standard that we want and should be wanting to conform ourselves to because we know that the master builder, the master designer, knows the end 
product and has been through this process a few times. <laughs> has God been through the process a few times? A few times more than you or I. We can trust him, and he has our good. He laid the foundation, remember? He sent his son to die for us and to conquer sin and death on our behalf. That's, he made the sacrifice. He's done all of that for us. Certainly he has our good in mind in all of his instructions. And we come to God's word and say, well, why should I have to do that? Why does that matter? And really, when you ask the question, you're revealing your ignorance. And what you need to acknowledge is God knows more than me. Because he knows why it matters. And that's what faith involves. Because faith is our first one on the list here in 2 Timothy 1.5. Because you're going to start with faith, you're going to add to it. And faith is saying that God says this matters, so it matters. And I will submit myself to this, and I will let this define my life. This is how I'm going to live my life. This is going to set the course for my life, is God's design. I don't understand it all, and I don't have to, because I know the one who set the standards is the one who developed the ruler, the level, and the square. And I trust him. And when we ask the question of God, why do I have to do that? We are exerting a rebellion against his rule. We are no longer seeing him as Lord and as our God. We're seeing him as an advisor. And God says, no, I have these things. And so if, if those things trouble you, I would challenge you to just study God's word. Do your diligence of investigating these things. There are many people's, we have examples, we have declarations, we have commands, we have instructions, we have all sorts of varied approaches to give us this information so that we can recognize this matters somehow. I may not be aware of fully how, but it matters somehow, and therefore I'm going to follow after God's design instead of man's design. And yes, your culture is man's design. Okay, I don't care what your cultural background is. It is designed by men. And we can applaud ourselves in this, in this state, especially I think New Mexico, more than many other states. Oh, we're multicultural. And I'm like, okay, well now you just have many representations of bad culture, of man's design. Let me tell you what should be monocultural, the church. I had this disagreement with a mission board once who said, we want multicultural churches. I said, I don't. Or you don't know what the word cultural means. I should be able to go anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, and find a ruler, a level, and a square that dictates every church. Because I'm pretty sure they all use it in their physical buildings. 
<laughs> Doesn't matter where I go, where they don't use it, the buildings fall down when the ground shakes a little bit or when the wind blows or the rain falls. The rains came down and the floods went up. And you know what happens. The house on the sand went flat. Or is it splat? Never knew. So I want a monoculture in my church because that we are all leaning and building according to this rule on a foundation of Christ all the same. This is what Peter wanted. This is what Paul wanted. He says, I want you to, when, when Paul tells in Ephesians that we're doing all of this for unity of the faith. And so we have this now. Is there diversity of gifts? Yes. Is there diversity of ministries? Yes. But there's single culture. See, a culture is simply a set of beliefs that you live by. We should not be a multicultural church. Most are, because we all have our own beliefs we live by. But they should all be driven and subordinated to this culture of Scripture. Do your due diligence. Know what God approves. Bring it into your life and submit to it no matter how much you want to fight against it because I wasn't raised that way. I don't care. Change. Can do that? Sure. I think that's what the gospel is all about, transforming our lives into something that looks more like Christ every day. Change. Well, I better keep going. I got the other half. Okay. I have a lot more I'd like to say about that. You know it. But I can't give two sermons on one word. So here we go. Let's go to the other prong of diligence. First prong, do your investigation. Have a thorough knowledge of what God approves and bring it into your life. The second prong of diligence could be Used both the word perseverance, of keep pressing on, of determination. These are the other side of diligence. So there's one side where I'm going to be, I'm going to really know my stuff. I'm not going to be walking blindly and building blindly this Christian life on this wonderful foundation. The other side is I'm going to keep pushing myself to do it. I'm going to work and work hard at it. I am going to be driven to press on. And Paul describes that in Philippians. I'm going to press on for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to, all things behind, I'm going to press on forward on the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of sharing and suffering. Um, I'm going to keep pushing it. And that's a guy really late in his life who could have just sat back on his laurels and said, you know, I've done enough for God. It's time for somebody else. These young bucks, I've trained to do it. He says, oh, no, I'm pressing on. I want to grasp hold of the prize. And it is to the diligent. It is those that will just keep going and keep working and keep applying themselves. There are going to be opposition, certainly, but I'm going to be diligent. There's going to be seasons that, it, that it's easier, seasons that it's more difficult, seasons in between. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep doing the hard work. And that is the other prong of discipline, of, <laughs> what's the word, diligence. 
I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep applying myself. I'm not going to rest on this and say, I'm done, you know, now if God wants to do anything more, he's going to have to do it. I've done my part. You've done nothing compared to the foundation, the fantastic foundation that you're being built upon. And you've heard me, one of my favorite passages in Luke, uh, when we've done everything that God's commanded, your response is, we are unprofitable servants. We've only done what is our duty to do. That should be our attitude is I haven't done enough. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep pressing. I, I recognize that, that I have more. And that's the whole attitude that we see in 1 Peter 1, in, in 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, that we want to see a fruitfulness, so I'm going to keep pressing on in these areas, and I'm going to not be content with just faith. A lot of your neighbors will be. A lot of, quote-unquote, Christians. I, got, I believe in Jesus. Okay, then what? So we're going to be visiting James in the next couple of weeks. I'll just throw that out. If you want to read the book of James in preparation, you'll have a better idea where we're going with this. And so add to your faith something. And then add to that some more. And add to that some more. Well, one half of diligence is to study what it is you're supposed to be adding to your faith. The other part of it is this is kind of a work list. This means I have to apply energy consistently to this activity. It's not something that I can get there and say, oh, ah, I'm finished. Maybe that's why my sunroom is never going to be done. Don't even talk to me about the Bahamas. There's always more to improve. I'm going to keep gaining the spiritual ground in my life. There is no retirement here on earth. Our retirement plan, our time of rest is our Sabbath rest, the uh, Hebrews calls it, is in heaven. That is your Sabbath rest. This is not the time for that. I don't care if you are 92. This is not your Sabbath rest. That's to come. And so we keep applying ourselves. We keep energizing ourselves and saying, I have more work to do. There's more to do. And as soon as we become complacent in our Christian walk, we become stagnant. We become slack water is the old term we used to use for that. What's stagnant water look like? Smell like? Do you want to drink it? Oh, no. You don't want to bathe in it either. It's where all the scum of that body of water gathers. But that's what Christian living has become for too many people. Why? Because I just stopped applying any energy to it. I stopped making a priority of my day that sometimes throughout this day I'm going to engage myself and I'm going to be diligent in my Christian living and in, in the construction of this life of Christ in me. Because it's getting too hard. Or maybe it's getting too easy. For most of us, that's the case. We want to be spoon-fed everything. We don't want to chew. 
It's not, an old, it's not a new problem. It's an old one. Hebrews talks about it. You should have been ready for adult food by now, but I'm still going to give you baby food. Because you don't want to even be diligent enough to chew, let alone to act upon that information. Because you see, as you do one side of diligence, it affects the other side. As you do this side, it affects that side. And we find that these are complementary, and that's why they come together, is that I'm going to work hard. If I work hard on error, I'm doing a poor building job. If I have all this information, have all this directive, if I have all this understanding and don't put it into practice, the Bible describes me as a fool. Yeah, they see God in creation, but they deny him. The evidence is there. It's explorable. It's understandable. But we don't like its conclusion. Therefore, we deny it. And Peter's going to talk about those kinds of people later on in this book who say, oh, things aren't going to end. It's all going to continue. It always has. This is how it's always been. This is how it's always going to be. And then, and so there's no excuse. You become like that rich man versus Lazarus who says, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. You know, my, my barns are full. I'm done. I can just relax. And what does God say? You fool. You fool. Tonight, I'm going to require something of you, your soul. Oh, what a dangerous setting. You think you're done and can become complacent and come coast into heaven, and God says, you fool. And so we are called to this diligence that feeds upon it your energy, your strength, your, your resolve to persist is fed by our understanding of what is required of us and our willingness to acknowledge its authority. This is the power of submission. We don't think of submission as being a powerful thing, but in the Bible it always is. There's enormous power in submission. When I submit to God's truth and I say I'm going to make it right according to God's word, and I'm going to bring that into us, then you have the energy to continue and to persist. And that's where your perseverance is going to be derived from. But if you're going to be going your own way and doing your own thing and, and willy-nilly here and there, um, no wonder we have discouragement. No wonder we have people on medication because they're depressed. I think that's what happened to Cain, right? He went his own way. I don't want to submit to do it. Why does it have to be a blood sacrifice? I grew these vegetables. I did as much work as able. Why does it have to be a blood sacrifice? I don't get that. Mine should be good enough too. Sound familiar? Same argument that many depressed Christians use against God. Why do I have to do that? I don't want to submit to your requirements. And God comes upon us and says, why are you downcast? If you'd done right, you'd have been approved. Just do right. The direct, Cain's depression was directly linked to his rejection of God's standard. He wanted to... Abandon the ruler, the level, the square, and build 
his worship the way he wanted it to be built. He said what God wanted. And the end result was he was miserable. There should be no such thing as a miserable Christian. We have this glorious foundation we're building on. We have a ruler, square, and level, and the spirit to help us know how to use them. Uh, And we should be building lives that glorify God, and the end result is that we should have joy unspeakable and full of glory. We don't need Prozac. We need God's word to become a reality in our life. This is diligence. And so I don't wander aimlessly anymore. And so I don't know. And people, I don't know what God wants me to do. I said, well, I do. He wants you to read his word and obey it. Let's start there for a change. And then he says he'll give you the desire of your heart. We want to start with that and not with the diligence, Right? Give me the desire of my heart. Well, your heart isn't right yet, so (laughs) you're just screwing your life up now. If I give you the desire of your heart now, when you haven't done diligence to really know what makes life pleasant, good, joyous, it's just going to mess you up. So let's work diligently to know what it is that we should be pursuing. And once we have... This, once we have this body of understanding of what it is we want to pursue and how good it is and how it fits the foundation perfectly of Christ, that lends all the energy to the activity of pursuit. I don't really want you to be hamsters in a little cage going, expending your energy, going nowhere and not even knowing you're just doing it because I've got nervous energy, you know, and i got to get it out. Um, What a waste. It's not what Peter wants. It's not what God wants. He wants you to invest that energy in the pursuit of that which is godly, that which is holy, that which is approved. And amazingly, there is great power in surrendering ourselves to that truth and thou in energizing us to remain and persevere in our faith. And that's how we're going to see these two come together so strongly in the next few weeks as we talk about what am I adding to my faith. And you're going to hear these themes, but they're going to be built upon this message. This word, diligence. All diligence. More diligence. Be diligent. So I want to introduce the next few weeks by looking at the first word. Add to your faith. We're going to stop right there. I hear a lot of people ask the same question. In fact, I was asked it yesterday. That The disciples asked Jesus. How do I increase my faith? Now, it's an easy answer. Right? Because that was asked of Jesus, and Jesus responded. So it's not hard to answer that question when people ask of me, I want want more faith. How can I increase my faith? And 
Jesus' answer was, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could do these amazing things for me. What does that mean? That that's the answer to that question? It means that you don't really need more faith. You don't need more faith. Because you don't need more than to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If he is the Lord and Savior, and you've acknowledged him and surrendered to him as Savior and Lord, then that's all the faith you really need. That is the foundation. I see nowhere, and even when we talk about, uh, and I already referenced Ephesians. Ephesians says, well, you've given you pastors, teachers, and prophets, and evangelists, so that we can all minister to one another, until we all reach what? unity of the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're going to get to knowledge, of course, coming in. And so here, in the context of why am I here, I'm not here to increase your faith. I am here that we might have unity of faith. That means that we're all trusting in the same thing, which isn't really a thing. It's a person, (laughs) Jesus Christ. We're not trying to get more, necessarily. It says you only need the faith of a mustard seed, Jesus' answer was, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, what was he inviting them? Just trust me. It's all you need. You think you have, you know, other people have incredible amounts of faith. When I think that they paint a rock and then pray to it to change the weather, um, I'm awed by the faith of Hindus. I mean, they take a rock, they paint on it, they set it in a special place, build a little cover for it, doesn't build its own cover, you know, and pray to it to change the weather and to make their crops grow. That's an incredible amount of faith to believe in a rock that you had to paint and give it a house. I think it's an incredible amount of faith. And so it's not more faith, it's where is the little faith you have placed Where's your faith at? The fact is, most of us have sufficient faith entirely. It is really where it's directed. And most of us, the problem isn't that we need more faith. It's that we need to be... We need our faith monodirected. There we go. How's that for a weird new word? You need your faith directed at the foundation. My trust is in Jesus Christ. Period. Not trust in Jesus Christ and doctors. Not trust in Jesus Christ and lawyers. Not trust in Jesus Christ and preachers. Not trust in Jesus Christ and. Not trust in Jesus Christ and the Constitution of the United States. Not trusting in Jesus Christ and my bank account. My accountant. No, I trust in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ says you don't need more faith. You need to... Take the faith you have and put it where it belongs. Put it upon whom it belongs. It is not really that you don't have enough faith. We all have incredible amounts of faith because you believe politicians. That alone means you have enough faith to trust in God. If you believe politicians, and you think they can actually change our country and help it, even the good ones,
there's only one government that works, right? Theocracy, and we won't ever get back to that till the kingdom comes when Jesus Christ arrives. But we believe. We believe democracies. We believe in republics. We believe in monarchs. We believe in communism. The church is in all those kinds of places. And they all believe in their own governments to some degree or another. We were called to centralize our belief upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Please note that Peter does not say, add to your faith. I'm sorry, increase your faith. He says, add to your faith. Not more faith. It's not what he says. He says, you have faith. You've trusted in Jesus Christ. That's sufficient. In that category, that's sufficient. Just keep believing in Jesus Christ. We're going to expand. We're going to add some rooms, but this is the core room. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. He's the one that delivered me from my sin, and he's the one for whom I live. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live is no longer for me, it's for him. It's no longer for the, my employer, it's for him. It's no longer for even my family, it's for him. It's no longer for my nation, it's for him. It's no longer for my pursuit of happiness. I think that's in the Constitution somewhere. Um, it's for him. This is what it means to be, trust in Jesus Christ. So we're going to start with faith next week. But don't think that we're going to say, well, how do I increase in faith? Because I'm going to give you the same answer Jesus did. Um, You already have it. Possibly misplaced in many categories of your life, but you have it. It's a gift of God. He's given it to all men. They express it. All men express faith. Your children believe in you. Do any of you have children that get up and say, "Um, are we good for this month on food and utilities? Any of your children get up and ask you that in the mornings? If they do, I'd, be, <laughs> I'd really be interested in hearing that. Why? But um, some children have that. Your children don't. Why? Because you're wealthy. Some countries, that's a concern of children. Just tells you how wealthy you are, that your children don't even think about that. That's why they waste food, and they waste that because you have so abundantly supplied for them. Our Lord has abundantly supplied for us. And so we trust in him, in that abundant provision. And I'll need to go elsewhere. I'm not enticed by that. I shouldn't be because of the abundance of his supply. And so I have faith. If he can forgive my sins and grant me a place in heaven, that's the macro things. I'm sure I can trust him with the micro things of my life. That's logic. That's reasoning. And to be reversed is fallacious, is error. And so I trust him with my eternal existence. I can trust him with my daily bread. I can trust him with these things. My faith is sufficient. If you have the faith to believe in Christ as your Savior and Lord at salvation, then you have sufficient faith 
for the balance of your days. Be diligent in it. You can understand the depth and the breadth of it. You can study it. You can learn more about it, certainly. And you, but you need to let that understanding empower it. And now you're acting out this faith. And so if God says, take your son, your only son that you love, and take him up the mountain and sacrifice him to me, you're going to do it. That makes no sense. He's the child you promised me. I don't think that's what you meant. Oh no, do it. You see, and the issues you have with God are not that severe all of a sudden, are they? Compared to sacrificing your one and only son, the one son that you love. It wasn't his only son because he had the other one. Take your son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Because I think you're loving him more than me. Let's find out. Do you have divided faith? And Abram passed the test. He didn't have divided faith. He trusted God. So he climbed that mountain, made Isaac carry the wood that he would be burned on, left the servants behind, bound up his own son, and drew the knife to shed his blood. Did that man believe God? Oh, yes. Do you have that kind of faith? Yes, you do. You have sufficient faith. It's just often misplaced and divided. But you have the faith within you because the fact is most of you are sacrificing your children. Most of us all do. We sacrifice our children in our school systems, we sacrifice our children in their entertainment, we sacrifice our children in many ways to the world. We offer them up to the false gods of this world on a regular basis and applaud ourselves if we can get them to Sunday school or we're life club. And aren't attentive to the many, many hours they spend in this world. Because you trust the world. You see, you have sufficient faith. But have you done the diligence to direct it pointedly and purposefully and completely upon the foundation, Jesus Christ? Or are you building only one or two rooms of your life on his foundation and the rest is on sinking sand of men's wisdom? Let us be advised, not by the perceptions of others, but by the ruler. Let's be advised by the square, by the level that God's provided us. Be diligent. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Again, we rejoice in all that you've provided for us, that we might grow and increase, that we might glorify your name and be approved by you in all we do, simply by following your word. Give us the power of submission. The submission provides that we might uh, model 
that life that you have for us to those around us and that your church might be impacted to live not only individually but as a body according to your rule, your level, your square. We thank you for it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.